Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Oh, my goodness. That's amazing. Thank you. Your morning greeting. Um, great to worship together, as always. Um, really quickly, just on the midweek, we're going to be praying lots. So uh, we're going we're gonna to take time to pray. But just before we do that, uh, we're going to loosely base our, our midweeks. The teaching will be loosely based around a book that Brian Heasley wrote called Be Still. But I'm also going to be taken from uh, a guy called Rich Valotis um, and another hero of mine, Henry Nguyen. Uh, we're just going to talk a wee bit about um, quiet times. We're going to talk a wee bit around distractions and how we actually acknowledge them, but also what we do with them. Um, so we're going to be quite practical in how we, uh, in how we can do our quiet times really well and, uh, and some practical stuff around that and then we will give space just to be able to, to pray together. Um, I, I, I love our times together on a Tuesday morning over Zoom um, but I do, I do miss, I have missed, it's one of the things that I have missed over the last couple of years is, is that, that just that rhythm of physically being together and praying, crying out to the Lord as family. So. Uh, so we're gonna we're gonna do that over the next number of uh, Wednesday nights. It's gonna take us right up to Halloween. So Nav did a great job of starting off uh, our, our the series last week. I don't know if you've if you've noticed. Every time I go to talk to try to name this series, foundations, I've I've almost like stumbled over it because there's been a small part of me that's been like, is that what we want to title it? And I think I discovered why I was stumbling over that just this morning while I sat here, um, earlier on this morning before everybody came. And it was this verse in 1 Corinthians 3, verse 11, where it says, no one can lay any foundation other than the one that is already laid, and that's Jesus Christ. And so I think maybe that's what was my wrestle. Because I don't want us to, th I, don't, I realize I don't, we are still going to use that language in a way, but Neville has laid the foundation last week, and so we're building on that. So Jesus is the foundation. He's not equal to the Bible. He's not equal to all of the other things that we're going to talk about that are really important, that are a huge part of uh, what it means to, to be a Christian, what it means to, to, to follow Jesus, what it means to be a worshiper of God. Actually, Jesus is, there's no, one, there's no other foundation that you can lay up apart from Jesus. And so Nev's done that. And so we're going to keep laying on top of that. So what series title could you give that? Like, layers? No, I don't know if I want to do that. Anyway, it's still foundation. But it's being laid on top of Jesus. And, and hear that actually, the Bible is not, the Bible is not equal to Jesus. The Bible is not God. I'm, I love the Bible. The Bible is the Word of God, which bears witness to the Word of God. It's the Word of God that points us to the Word of God. And so this morning, um, we're going to talk about the Bible. And there's part of me really nervous. I don't know if you can hear my voice. There's part of me nervous this morning because I 
want to, I do not want to shake any of your foundations. I don't want to shake anything that you believe and hold passionately about what the Bible means to you. But this morning I want to talk about a few things. I want to suggest a few things. I want to open up a conversation to what, uh, what the Bible is and what it isn't. To what the Bible does and what it doesn't. And I hope the whole way through this you will hear my heart that we throughout this, Neville mentioned it again yesterday or last week um, as he thought back to William's conversation here, we want to make much of Jesus. And so everything, something that I say this morning that you don't agree with, you don't like, please know my heart is to make much of Jesus. I believe that with Paul, when he wrote to the church in Colossae, that all things are held together in him. I want to make much of Jesus. And so as I've already alluded to, the Bible is, is not primarily the word of God Jesus is. And Jesus himself, I think we could go to John chapter 5, whenever Jesus, frustrated as with the religious leaders, frustrated with those people who were supposedly representing God and who he was and his character and his nature, Jesus was so frustrated with them. And he said, you keep on searching the scriptures. You keep on going to the scriptures because you think that is where you will find eternal life. But the scriptures point to me. This was, the, this was what Jesus was wrestling with and engaging with the whole way through his ministry. And so this morning, I, again, I'm nervous because I don't want to shake foundations. I don't want to shake like really strong beliefs that you have. But I want to suggest to you today that the Bible is not an instruction manual. I don't think it was ever intended to be an instruction manual. I don't think it was ever intended to be a rule book. In fact, I was in conversation with somebody this week, and we were talking about how much easier it would be if the Bible was a rule book. I would, I would prefer it. I actually would so much more prefer the Bible to be a rule book, that whenever I went to it, that it had clear, direct answers on absolutely every single topic. I wish it was as clear as that. I wish it was as black and white as that because there's comfort in, there is comfort in certainty. But if it was a rule book, I think uh, there would be so much fewer denominations, wouldn't there? If it was as clear and as obvious, this rule book, this instruction manual, I don't think that there would be as many different opinions, that there would be as many different denominations. It would be so much easier if it was a rule book. It would be so much easier if it was an instruction manual. I don't think it is, and I don't think it, it needs to be. A few things that I'd love to say as I continue to introduce this. What I think we can, there's some things that we can all agree on, I hope. There's some stuff that I might, that I might say here this morning that, we'll, that we won't. But I think, first of all, I want to say, again, echoing the words of Paul, that we know in part. So I stand here this morning fully aware, fully acknowledging, fully taking ownership that I know, I know in part. 
there's a, and that's what sort of what eases the nerves because as I look around the room, as incredible as you all are and as wise and wonderful as you all are, you too only know a wee bit. You too only know a part and so that makes me breathe a wee bit. We only, we, and, and sometimes even what we do know, we, again in the words of Paul, we see through a glass dimly, we see into a mirror dimly. So can we agree on that? We know in part and we see dimly. Is that okay? We're all on the same page at the minute. I wonder what you, how you react to this. Is there an awareness that the Bible does not speak with a single voice on most or many topics? I'm not asking you to give me an answer. But there's something that I, that I think that if we were to honestly and, 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 and take, read through this, if we were had the chance someday, we could sit for days and go through this, we'll find that the, there is various voices speaking about one particular topic. And this is where my, my frustration and uh, my angst over years of following Jesus was I tried to harmonize all of the different voices into one. I thought that's what I had to do. I thought because I, I was brought up on the diet of the Bible is it's inerrant, there is no mistakes, there is no errors, there's no contradictions. I, I grew up thinking I had to harmonize all of the, all of the things that contradicted, all of the things that, were, that were, weren't in harmony with one another. I felt like I had to. I had to force all of these voices into one. And I don't think we have to do that. I think the gift of the Bible is to us that we don't have to do that. And maybe we're not all in agreement with that, but I hope we're all in agreement with this, that we all come to the Bible, we all approach the Bible with our own baggage. We all approach it with our own traditions. We all approach it with our own personality, which is important to acknowledge. We all approach it, approach it with our own um, upbringings, with our own traditions. And I think we, I'd love to be able to say that we can all agree on that. As I've said, my frustration for years was trying to harmonize all of the texts th throughout the Old Testament, try to harmonize them all in to, to say the same thing all of those texts that are in tension with each other, and we'll get to a few examples, all of those texts that were in tension with another, I got so frustrated. Honestly, I got so anxious about trying to get them to say the same thing. And even at the times where I did get them to say the same thing, it just didn't feel authentic, it just didn't feel Right, and then I began, to, I began to engage with Jewish scholars, began to, not physically, but I began to engage with their writings, began to engage deeper and deeper into church history, and I began to realize that contradictions in the Old Testament were never, are not a secret. And so you don't have to agree with that, but, there, but whenever you go back into the Jewish uh, scholars, the Jewish writings, the Jewish tradition has wrestled with contradictions in the Old Testament long before Christianity. And Christianity, Christianity has done the same. We could pinpoint, we could drop a pin into any point of church history 
You could drop a pin anywhere and you could see that people have wrestled with this. They've used the Bible, but they've also used tradition and experience and reason to work out what God is saying and what God is doing. I don't believe that the Bible is designed primarily to give us clear answers. I think we can all agree on this too, that it's an ancient book. This book is thousands of years old. This is an ancient book and it is fully embedded. It is fully embedded in a distant and world that is utterly foreign to us in the 21st century. So we can all agree on that. It's ancient and it's fully embedded in its context, in its time, in a world that is utterly foreign to us, in a world that is distant to us. So, for example, if we were to open up the first pages of the Bible this morning, we'll go to Genesis. And we will engage with what their understanding of creation at that time was. For years, centuries, their understanding of creation was this was a dome above their heads. They lived above, under a dome. And the times that it rained was whenever the dome was, there was holes created in the dome and the dome was ripped open and that's when the water came through because the, the dome, the firmament above them, this dome was separating the water from the sky. Like, who now, who, anybody in the room still believe that? We are no, we're not living under a dome, but that was their understanding. And since then, we've, because of science, because of lots of different things, we've adapted. And the thing that is really important to, for us all to hear, I think, is that Genesis was not designed to answer 21st century scientific questions. I hope I'm not boring you this morning. This stuff, like, honestly, I love it. Genesis was not designed to answer 21st century scientific questions. What the writer of Genesis was doing was asking questions about the nature of this God who was, seemed so different to all of the other gods. This God wanted relationship. This God was different. And the writers of Genesis, that's what was dominating their mind. And somehow we've used Genesis to be a debate between how old the earth, all of that sort of stuff. Genesis was never asking those questions. Those are 21st century questions that we've tried to impose on it and made it something that it was never intended to be. They were asking questions about who this God is and what his relationship was with this creation. And so what I would love to suggest to you is that what God was doing from the beginning is what he continues to do now. That he met his people. He met, meets us on our terms, in our time, and in our place, and he steps into our world. And so we didn't step into the world of Genesis and say, guys, see this stuff about the dome? You've got it all wrong. What are you, what are you talking about? He didn't do that. He didn't come and point out all the places they've got it wrong. He came and wh wh where they were at in their time and in their place and in their understanding, he, st he steps into their world. And he continues, I believe, to do that. And I think 
what I've loved and what I've come to so value about the Bible over the last number of years, I love the Bible. You know that? We have this invitation to join, to join an ancient, well-traveled quest to know this God. We join, there's an invitation to join in this story. There's an invitation to join in this ancient thousand centuries, millennium old quest to know this God and to know the world and that we live in and our place in it. And there's scholars that I so appreciate and the language that they have given me has so helped my relationship with the word as it points me to the word. But I've come to realize the Bible is all about wisdom. And I remember, I almost feel like I could, I could pinpoint the moment where I went on, the, on, a, on a journey to ask questions about the scriptures that I'd never done before. And it all started in whenever I read Proverbs 26, verses 4 and 5. I'm hoping you're still with me. This is what it says, 20, Proverbs 26. I almost encourage you, I'll read this out, but I encourage you to take note and Maybe even just wrestle through this for yourself later. Or take note of it so you don't think that I'm just making this up to suit what I want to say. But Proverbs 26 verse 4 says, Do not answer a fool or a fool's argument, or you will become as foolish as they are. Okay? Don't do it. Proverbs, the wisest man, don't answer a fool according to his foolish arguments, or you'll become as foolish as they are. Good advice. I wonder if he wants to add on to that. Well, let's read verse five. Be sure to answer a fool and their foolish arguments, or they will become wise in their own eyes. You heard it? In two verses, Proverbs 26 verse four is telling us, whatever you do, do not answer a fool or you'll become as foolish as they are. And then backs it up by saying, whatever you do, answer a fool, or they'll think they're smarter than they actually are. Isn't that crazy? And so that started me on a journey, and I began to believe that what was happening here is almost a, a model of what is going on with the whole of Scripture. That, those verses... They're God-inspired, God-breathed, but they're not telling us clearly what to, what to think and what to do. They're inviting us to discern. They're inviting us to figure out what it is that the Spirit is doing. They're inviting us to figure out the circumstances of our time and our place. And that's why it's such a gift to us. Because everything within me wants to, to get, open up the Bible and take you to a certain place and say, here's exactly what you have to do and here's exactly what you have to think. But when I go to the Proverbs, the, the likes of the Proverbs here, I can't do it. And so then we go to the law. I believe that the law is doing the same thing. That to discern how a law is to be obeyed is an act of wisdom. For example... Exodus 20, we're given the commandments and one of them is keep the Sabbath holy. I think to obey that law is it's an act of discernment. 
Because I, I, I would be sure if I went around the room today, I'm pretty sure I would get five or six opinions or thoughts or discernment of what it means to keep the Sabbath holy. Okay, well, when do I do it? How, how do I do it? What can I do and what can't I do? Should I, do the, should I stand still? Because at least I know then I'm not doing anything that <laughs> I shouldn't do. I'll just stand still and breathe slowly. And then I'll know I'm keeping it holy. Or do we do the things that we enjoy? Do we take the day of rest and f- like just fully engage with the things that bring us life and bring us energy? And part of me wants to say yes to all of that. It's an act of discernment. It's an act of employing wisdom in how we obey the law. Does that make sense? So for me, the, honestly, this is it's, it's almost like a fresh life to faith. When you're able to let go of the familiar expectation of certainty from the Bible and just begin to pay careful attention to what it's saying. Begin to pay careful attention to what it's doing. Begin to recognize that it, could this possibly be an invitation into the story? Could this be an invitation into what is the Spirit doing? What is the Spirit saying? which requires wisdom, which requires discernment. And so over and over throughout the Bible, we'll just, we'll see that the likes of the laws, amongst other things, being adapted. Because as they began, as as the people of God began to get further insight into the nature and the character of this God, they had to reimagine him. They had to adapt. And sometimes I think that causes us to, where are you going here? But I think the Bible does that for us. We see that in the pages of the Bible, how it adapts over time. So, for example, we could go into the Psalms, and I don't know, I could, and, and, and Nev said, like, Nev loves the Psalms. I love the Psalms, but there is some of the Psalms that, like, honestly disturb me at times. The psalmist is crying out, Lord, would you kill these people, would you leave the mothers as widows? Would you leave the children as orphans? Like, this is the prayer of the man after God's own heart. This is the prayer of David, asking God to kill his enemies. And so I know that the Bible says that, but can I just tell you, praying that God would kill your enemies is wrong. Jesus said so. We're building our foundation on Jesus. And so although the psalmist prayed, they're, they're, they began to adapt over time. They began to reimagine this God. And the cross was probably the, the pivotal moment where they just had to fully reimagine Messiah, fully reimagine God, because there was nobody, nobody from any tradition, from any understanding could, would ever have thought that a Messiah would have been crucified that a king would have laid down his life for his enemies. That required a reimagining of of God. It required an adapting of what they thought and who they thought he was. And so honestly, I I could get into this all day. And if you want a coffee and 
humor me and allow me to give you story after story of how the Bible adapts and reimagines God over the years and over the centuries. Please, I'll even buy the coffee. I'll buy a Trebek and lunch and everything if you let me bend your ear to talk about this. Because what I missed, what I missed for years was that Samuel and Kings, so we love those stories uh, in, in the Bible, and we could point to some of our favorites. But what, I think, what, what I think is important for us to know, actually, is that First and, Sac- First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings was written at a particular time, in a particular place, with a particular understanding, and God stepped into that. And so the writer of this account was writing during the exile. When God's people, so this was years after it, this was centuries after the events that actually happened. And they're beginning to, to write it down. They're beginning to write it down years later. And when they're writing it down, they're writing it down in a place of exile where they've been brought out from the place that they were promised. They were brought away from the place that they had uh, thought that they would always be. And the question that the writers were asking was, how did we get into this mess? They're writing it in a place of exile, writing in a place where they've been dragged away from the promised land. And they're asking, how have we got into this mess? A few centuries later, a few hundred years later, Chronicles, First and Second Chronicles, is retelling the story at a much, much, much later point in history. They're writing it not in a place of exile, but they're writing it in a place where they're back. They're back in their own land. They're back in their own place. And they're not, no longer asking the question, how did we get into this mess? They're asking the question, is God still with us? Is God still for us? So they're writing at a different, completely different time, and they're actually writing with a completely different purpose to a completely different group of people. And so whenever it comes to the many things that are completely different in these two accounts, we, we just need to be comfortable with the, with, the, with the fact that they were written entirely different times to an entirely different group of people with an entirely different purpose in mind. So for example, 2 Kings um, chapter 20 talks about King Manasseh, and I encourage you to go and read it. And so the question that they're asking at the time that this has been written is how did we get into this mess? And they're blaming Manasseh. Manasseh was an evil king. And throughout the, this account of Manasseh, they're saying that he, he slaughtered his own children in order to appease the God. He did all of these horrendous things. That's all we're told about him. And they're saying because of that, that's why we've ended up where we are. But when you go to Chronicles, you will read an entirely different account of King Manasseh. In fact, the, the writer of the Chronicles tells us that King Manasseh humbled himself before the Lord. And because he did that, that's why the people got back into their own land. So how do you harmonize that? You can't try, you can't try and force those two things to say the same. Because one is, at, is in, in response to the question, how did we get into this mess? Is saying it was because of Manasseh and his evil deeds. The chronicle, the writer of the chronicles, years later, at a different time, asking a different question. How have we, now that we're back in our own place, is God still with us? They're, they're saying it's because Manasseh humbled himself. And it's because Manasseh turned and repented that that's why God has, you know, 
Do you hear me? That is, like, that is opposite. And, I, and the gift of the Bible is not having to try and force those two things into saying the same thing, but it's in recognizing and acknowledging that he speaks and he encounters us at a different time, at a different place, a different level of understanding. We get to see and hear what the Spirit is saying now and what he is doing now. And make sure you hear this. God does not change. Absolutely not. God does not change, but the times that we live, the circumstances that surround us change all the time. And as people of faith, we perceive and we discern the, what God is doing, and we perceive His ways differently, so He doesn't change, but our perception of Him and His character and His ways does. Reimagining God for our here and now is what Christians and Jewish people have been doing for as long as there has been Jewish people and Christian people. We could spend, again, we could spend, oh man, we could spend loads of time talking about the Gospels. And I used to get, I, again, I used to get so worked up about how do I, like, get, because if you were to line up all the Gospels side by side, you'll see that they're not saying the same thing about the birth story, about different things throughout. And at times that caused me, for, maybe it doesn't for you, so forgive me for putting this on you, but there's times I just like get so worked up trying to make that all say the same thing. But there's a reason why we have four different accounts. We have four deliberate shapings of the life of Jesus in order to address the needs of, a, of different communities at different times. And they don't have to match up. Why do we need them to match up? Like no one was taking notes. I guarantee you if, we, if there was something significant happened, if we were to take what's happened over the last week and then in about 20 or 30 years' time, like the Gospels, began to get an eyewitness account from everybody, we would all remember things differently. There would be things that we thought were really important that we wanted to get down, written down that wouldn't be the same for somebody else. And that's what was going on in the Gospels. The writers were writing about what that this person, this witness of Jesus for the needs of the community that they were in. And I think there's moments where Jesus um, gives us permission to adapt, to reimagine. In Matthew 13, verse 52, he says that the kingdom of heaven is like the owner of a house who brings out of his storehouses new treasures as well as old. So we can be both, we can be like bound to the past, still invited into this ancient story, yet remaining open to the movement of God's spirit, which is never bound to tradition, which is never bound to our theologies. I could take loads of time talking about the parables. Again, the parables remind me of the, of the verses in Proverbs. Parables are acts of wisdom. The genius of Jesus is that the parables are timeless. Again, they don't tell us what to do or think in the same way as the parables didn't or as the Proverbs didn't. We're told in Mark 4, 34 that he, Jesus did not say anything to them without using parable. And so again, we could go around the room and, and pick up a parable and ask what it means to you and I think we would get all different responses, all different engagements and that is good. 
they were purposely, I think, never crystal clear. They're inviting us to ponder. They're inviting us to discern and to bring their wisdom, to bring the wisdom of Jesus into our here and now. We had talk for hours on the letters of Paul. And Paul was reimagining. Paul, I know how comfortable you are with that language, but Paul was constantly adapting. Because Paul knew, Paul knew the scriptures. He knew that Genesis 17, speaking of circumcision, said this was an everlasting covenant. He knew the dietary laws. He knew about the, the, the laws around unclean and clean animals. They were non-negotiable. Paul adapts. He gets into a bit of a battle with the Jewish, the Jewish leaders. He gets into a battle with the church at Jerusalem. And he says, guys, there is Gentile. This, what the Spirit is doing among the Gentiles is beautiful. They don't need to be circumcised. They don't need to follow our dietary laws. And that was massive because that was core to the, to the identity. There was core to the Jewish identity. And Paul, because of his revelation... Paul, because in light of Jesus, in light of the gospel, he adjusts. He says, we no longer need this because the Spirit is doing something beautiful. The Spirit is doing something new. And we could talk about all the issues that Paul addressed. And the thing that breaks my, honestly, it breaks my heart, and I've looked at it again over the last number of weeks. Slavery, for example. And that's why at times the Bible can almost be dangerous in the hands of some people because it, it, it modern human slavery people that were abolitionists they used the bible to to justify slavery anti-abolitionists they used the exact same bible to say that slavery was wrong and this is where it becomes and we, I, we still see that at times today maybe not with slavery but but dangerous use of the Bible. And what I love about the anti-abolitionists is that they argued on the basis of the Bible's trajectory. They acknowledged the trajectory, the way that, that God was moving, the way that the Spirit was working. And so that type of an argument is a wisdom argument because it took them no longer from uh, being tied to the ink on a page as Nev talked about last week, but the discerning where the Spirit was leading. And in fact, to addressing human slavery took them beyond the Bible to set people free, to that, that that was no longer, um, well, it still is, but they were, they, to, to use the wisdom argument had to take them beyond the ink of the page, beyond what the Bible said. And, the frustrating thing is time for me is that we, when we use the Bible, when we use Bible verses completely det det detached from the context, the time and the place and the understanding, especially on difficult and complex issues, it serves no one. It doesn't, it doesn't serve us well, I don't believe, and it doesn't serve those that we're engaging with. I want to have to finish because honestly, there's just page after page here. But just to get back to, I think the Bible looks the way that it does because God lets his children tell the story. And what I want to make sure 
that you hear is Jesus is the revelation that culminates and supersedes all other revelation. Christianity, because Christianity depends on Jesus, we cannot do without the Bible. It contains almost all that we know about him. But the setting should not become more important than the jewel. That's not my language, by the way. The setting should not become more important than the jewel. And I'll finish with this quote. The church, read, listened to a podcast this week. The church is not a group of people who believe all the same things. The church is a group of people caught up in the same story with Jesus at the center. And so when it comes to interpreting the Bible, I'd love it that we would do what the Jewish tradition continues to do and has always done and what the, the early Christian church had always practiced was interpreting this, interpreting what it says, what the Spirit is doing in community. It's what we have to be doing. Too often within evangelical or Protestant churches, the, um, the, the closing of the Bible, as I finish here, was the end of the discussion. For the Jewish tradition and for the early Christians, the, the closing of the Bible was the beginning of the conversation. So that's my heart. My heart is that we would, that we would follow suit we would interpret as community, we would recognize that we are caught up in the story, the same story with Jesus at the center. Um, so let me pray. Father, thank you for, thank you for this, for this word. Thank you that it's, that we go to it thousands of years later and it's still timeless. It still speaks. It still offers us wisdom, it still offers us a revelation of who you are, what you've done, and you're inviting us, Holy Spirit, we, we cry out that we need you, and uh, we need you because we need to hear and, and discern what it is that you're doing in our day, in our time, and in our place. So Holy Spirit, help us, I pray in Jesus' name.